Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Today's episode is sponsored by AARP. Will 50-plus voters decide the Ohio midterms? The latest issue of Politico magazine series, The Deciders, is examining working-class voters over 50 in Ohio. Visit politico.com slash the deciders to learn more. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, we go inside the White House and the halls of Congress as the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination swings from sure thing to potentially in doubt after an allegation of sexual assault from the early 80s. Plus, sleeper Senate races. We're going to talk about five contests where surprises could be in store that uh, you might be thinking about a lot in late October and early November. A reminder before we jump into all that to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And remember to stay tuned for the end of the show for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. One more note before we begin, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, September 20th, so it is all up to date as of then, unless we get hit once more by the Nerdcast curse. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. We have in the studio Nancy Cook from our White House team. Hi, Nancy. Hey, thanks for having me. Also in the studio, Burgess Everett, one of our uh, congressional reporters. Hi, Burgess. Good to see you. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. And on Skype from the Capitol, another congressional reporter for Politico, Alana Shore. Hi, Alana. Hi there. Time for our first data point, three. There are three senators serving on the Judiciary Committee who were there some 27 years ago and played a role in the Anita Hill hearings about sexual harassment during the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court nomination. Why is this relevant? It's relevant because the Senate Judiciary Committee is once again figuring out how to handle a sexual allegation against a Supreme Court nominee. This week, the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to serve on the nation's highest court has gone from a sure bet to looking highly questionable to then seeming like it's going to proceed with maybe just a slight delay once again. What I'd like to do is talk through this story and describe what was happening behind the scenes as everything unfolded over the past week. Uh, For background, in case you're picking up this story kind of in the middle, on Sunday, the Washington Post published a detailed account about a California woman named Christine Blasey Ford, in which she says Brett Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her at a party back when they were both in high school. This is in the early 80s. We'd known there was some sort of allegation that was detailed in a letter sent to Senator Dianne Feinstein. And this had started to dribble out in media reports about, you know, a a confidential accusation. And it turned out Ford had specifically asked Feinstein to keep it confidential. But the story last weekend put all the details out there. Ford decided to come forward as uh, there there were a few stories about this starting to come out. So given all this, it seemed like the Kavanaugh vote was possibly in jeopardy, certainly in jeopardy of a delay. Burgess, what was happening behind the scenes in Congress as senators tried to figure this one out? Basically, we've been seeing this develop for a week now. Um, There's a story in The Intercept uh, that has been fairly unkind to establishment Democrats over the past few months that identified that there was this letter that Senator Feinstein had. Since then, more and more details come out until that Sunday revelation where Ford goes public. And once that happened, 
the nomination really sort of pivoted into Republicans saying, we need to hit the brakes here and figure out what the hell is going on. And the early part of this week is senators from the Judiciary Committee and leadership just hold up in McConnell's office, Senate Majority Mitch McConnell, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and they are trying to figure out how do we keep this nomination on track and also seem sensitive to Ford. And where they ended up is sort of a take-it-or-leave-it offer. She can testify on Monday, and if she doesn't, we're going to move forward with this nomination. Uh, it, it's important to remember, though, throughout this process that we still don't know what was going on in Senator Dianne Feinstein's office. She first received this letter in late July, and she has said repeatedly under a lot of political pressure from Republicans to explain herself that the reason she only revealed it to fellow Democrats after the Intercept report was that Ford wanted to remain confidential. And Republicans shoot back, well, couldn't you have confidentially referred this to the FBI earlier? Because that's exactly what you did when the Intercept forced you to do it. And Feinstein has defended herself a lot, but has never really explained why this is coming out now. And it's 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 a whole big mess, right? Because it's all it's it's for for everyone, I think, for for Ford, for uh, for the senators, for the committee, for Kavanaugh, for the White House, because it's it's coming at what we thought was the end of the process and and kind of through through a big bump in into the middle of the proceedings uh again just just in the past week. Yeah, people really like the White House was feeling so good about this Kavanaugh confirmation and uh you know they thought they had it in a ba- the bag. Democrats hadn't really been able to figure out a way to successfully attack it because really the Senate can confirm him with just party line votes. And so the White House was feeling great about it. It's kind of a victory lap for White House counsel Don McGahn who has uh is going to leave after this and has put so much stock in uh you know the court system and picking judges. And so the White House was basically thrown into a huge tizzy over the weekend and on Sunday. And the president's interestingly the president's first response I was told, you know, internally, privately was like, let's hit back. And that was sort of what he always likes to do. And Kavanaugh agreed with that assessment. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. They both were like, we're going to hit back. Not that they were going to smear the woman, but they really both wanted to say, like, this is not true and be really aggressive about it. And basically what happened behind the scenes was that uh, McConnell, uh, who's really close with Don McGahn, the White House's top attorney, they both kind of talked Trump off the ledge and said, don't do this. Like you will enrage female voters, female suburban voters who we don't want. You know, we don't want to be seen as like discounting these women, this woman's allegations. Obviously, she's bring, you know, it's so fraught for her to bring it up. Let's not do that. That will be a bad look for us. So in like the most un-Trumpian thing that I've ever seen this White House happen in this White House is basically they talked Trump off the ledge on Sunday and, you know, got him off Twitter and kept him busy with other stuff like the hurricane and basically took a really subdued approach. And we saw that Kellyanne Conway, you know, top White House advisor, came out Monday morning and said this woman should be heard. And Trump really has sort of stuck with a much more measured tone than we've seen from him. Although I feel like the White House at this point, because it seems unlikely Ford is going to testify or it's just sort of up in the air still, the White House is increasingly feeling more and more confident. And we're seeing that uh, in the president's own rhetoric. Like he's starting to talk much more about this. He's starting to say many more things about Kavanaugh. Um, he's starting to wade in a bit more. What is the latest on, on Ford testifying or or not testifying? I know that there there was talk about uh, her being invited for, for Monday, and then it, it uh, seemed like her, her attorney was saying that she didn't want to participate in that until the matter had been referred to uh, for, for investigation by the FBI or, or potentially another sort of 
different panel than a congressional hearing, basically. Right. And we don't know. I mean, she hasn't said. She's been making several demands through her lawyers of the Judiciary Committee. And she doesn't say, if you do this, I will testify. And she also says, doesn't say, if you don't do this, I won't testify. Uh, so, you know, with this sort of gap of information about what's going to happen, Republicans have rushed to fill it and say, well, if she doesn't testify, we should move forward. Well, I can tell you what the White House thinks the next play is. They think and they are preparing for uh, another few women to come forward and potentially accuse Kavanaugh of some sort of improper behavior. They don't think that he, like, to be clear, they think that he's innocent. They've, like, really grilled him. Are, is there anything else in your past that you should know about? And and they feel confident that he is innocent. However, they are prepping for the idea that other people could come forward. And they've been in this war room in the Eisenhower um, Executive Office building, which is right next to the West Wing, and in Don McGahn's office, basically prepping for that. And, and when we talk about Ford, it's important to remember that her lawyer, Deborah Katz, is extremely experienced in these cases. She has represented multiple high-profile victims of sexual misconduct in the Hill and in media. So when Burgess and I talk about putting her on TV, you know, Katz knows how to handle this process. And it's been interesting, actually, to see them sort of bob and weave on this hearing, given how experienced her representation is. But I just think one point that that sometimes gets lost in it, um, because we're, we're so focused on sort of what's happening in Washington and sort of the strategy in play, is that while Ford does have an experienced lawyer, like she is a civilian and she lives in California and she's a scientist and um, a private person. And, and I just think it's a sort of an interesting moment. And, and you know, we're thinking in politically about like how this is going to play out in the midterms. Just you have this whole sort of establishment, Republican uh, groups, conservative groups sort of trying to prep Kavanaugh for this and doing this war room. And it makes me wonder, like, who is prepping Ford? She has this lawyer. But I don't think she just has the same uh level of support, both in terms of institutions behind her, you know, dollar figures, advertising and things like that. Republicans kind of think she's talking to the Democrats about how to prepare for what she's she might do be. Next. Mm-hmm. And the Democrats say that's not happening. And it's also possible there's a third party sort of mediating this. But, you know, I would agree with you that if she's not, she she needs to be getting more assistance if she's actually going to. Yeah, testify. because just like behind the Ford nomination are so many powerful special interest groups from the, the Kavanaugh cons- nomination. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Excuse me. The Kavanaugh nomination are so many conservative special interest groups from the Federalist Society to the Judicial Crisis Network to, you know, anti-abortion groups. Um, and they've been from they've to be clear, they've been on it from the beginning. Like they wanted a conservative judge, but they are ready to mobilize if this goes south as well. Burgess, I want to jump back into something you, you, you said just a second ago about how uh, Republican senators think that that Ford is prepping with Democrats for whatever comes next, and we still don't know. There seems to be just broad, uh, a, a broad feeling among Republican senators, these outside groups that Nancy just mentioned, the White House, said, that that Ford is acting in bad faith. Here I, is is that is that your your read on? That? I mean, what's the what's the political calculation that the senators are making on on that? Certainly, Lindsey Graham seemed pretty. Um, and he's become quite the defender of the president lately, but but he he seemed pretty uh, set on on that point. Is is that the broad feeling? If it is, most people aren't saying it really. And I, and I think privately that probably is. But you know, to Nancy's point about how McConnell is looking at this and the possibility you lose the Senate, 
uh, over this or any other myriad number of issues, uh, you, you got to be careful with how you talk about it. And so Lindsey Graham is a bit of the ex- an exception, but he has said, who paid for the polygraph, which she took and provided to the Washington Post, who pay, who's paying for her lawyers, basically. These are the questions she's raising, he's raising. And, you know, if you read into that just a little bit, you can tell if she appears before the committee, they're going to ask her about this stuff. Mm-hmm. She's going to be under oath and they're going to try to ca- probably catch her in a lie because they don't think the full story has been told yet. Well, and I think behind the scenes, there's a lot of Kavanaugh allies and these outside groups that are basically their strategy is not necessarily some people's strategy is definitely to smear forward. They're they're looking for oppor- opposition research on her dirt. But other people are basically just trying to they're going through yearbooks and they're going through real estate records for Maryland and they're trying to reconstruct the night of the party and figure out who was there, who might have been told about it. And basically with the goal of trying to show that either Kavanaugh wasn't there at the party at all, or that there was some sort of case of mistaken identity. That's what they're sort of trying to do behind the scenes. The the, the other question I'm thinking is is and Elana, I'm curious what you what you think about this is is the Senate. The, this strikes me as the kind of thing that the the Senate and a Senate committee is uniquely unsuited to investigate. Uh, given the you know, and especially having watched the confirmation hearings and the kind of uh, the 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 volleyball. They, they've turned into with, you know, you switch back and forth between the parties throwing, you know, uh, either kind of grandstanding questions from the Democrats or softballs from from the Republicans. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's not particularly informative. Uh, right. And then something like this comes along. Absolutely not. I, I don't say this uh, in any partisan fashion. It, this applies to both sides of the aisle. There's absolutely no way that a Ford appearance would be fair and even handed just because of the insane, chaotic partisan tension that dominated every single minute of those hearings. I was there the entire time, and I can genuinely say that you know this is personal for some of these folks um, in terms of they feel like their relationships with fellow senators are being kind of tarnished by the intensity of this process. And and if for you're talking about relationships across the parties. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Just between these lawmakers who serve together, things got very, very heated, even more so than usual. So so when I'm thinking ahead to a possible forward hearing, I'm saying, my God, there's absolutely no way that it wouldn't be dominated by that kind of animosity that predates her even stepping forward. Well, I guess, you know, as, as we mentioned, we still don't know exactly what uh, is going to be happening next week at this point. We may not know by the end of today. We may not even know by the end of tomorrow. But uh, either way, something, you know, is, is potentially on the docket for, for Monday. And uh, we're going to we're going to keep an eye on it and see see what ends up coming forward. Uh, Alana, thank you so much for joining us via Skype. Thank you. Burgess, thanks for being here in the studio. Thank you, Scott. And Nancy, thanks to you as always. Oh, thanks. Coming up, we are going to talk about why Democrats are starting to worry about New Jersey and Republicans are starting to worry about Texas. But first, a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by AARP. Will 50-plus voters decide the Ohio midterms? The latest issue of Politico magazine series, The Deciders, is examining working-class voters over 50 in Ohio who are feeling economic anxiety and could decide the gubernatorial and senatorial elections this November. Visit politico.com slash the deciders to learn more and to view the latest Politico AARP poll results. All right, we're going to move on to our second data point now, which is five, as in five Senate races that are long shots but could upend control of the chamber come November. 
Charlie Matessian joins us now, senior politics editor. Hello, Charlie. Hey, Scott. And we've also got Politico's polling guru and campaign rater, Steve Shepard, here in the studio to help us pick it apart. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me, Scott. All right. So you guys, you guys wrote this story uh, earlier this week about these these five sleeper Senate races that that could, given how tightly balanced things are, right? There's 51 uh, Republicans and 49 Democrats right now going into the election. Given how tightly balanced things are, they could they could decide the majority potentially, and they're getting less attention than some of the the main. Uh, uh, states on the map. So let's talk. First up, we've got Democrat Beto O'Rourke versus Republican incumbent Ted Cruz in Texas. All right. Steve, Charlie has often talked on the show about how statewide races in Texas are a white whale for Democrats. Even if you agree with him, try and convince Charlie that Beto O'Rourke could beat Ted Cruz in the fall. I wish you hadn't asked me to do that. Uh, Look, (laughs) no, it's true. Charlie, I, I... I'm going to try to convince him. First, I'm going to say that he's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> no Democrats won a Senate race in Texas uh, since 1988 when Lloyd Benson won, even though Lloyd Benson was also the vice presidential nominee. And he and Michael Dukakis lost the state to George H.W. Bush, of course, adopted native son. Um, you know, you have to go back to Ann Richards at the gubernatorial level. It has been dominated been by long Republicans time. for decades now. Um, that said, there are a-, a couple of things that we can point to. One, Wendy Davis. <laughs> You're just going to no, jump in go, with your rebuttal before on, I even Steve. make my argument. Wendy Davis. Uh, <laughs> um, no, there are a couple of things we could point to. One is there there is a segment of the electorate uh, in Texas that is sort of the sleeping giant. Um, the Hispanic vote, very, very low percentage of even those who are eligible to vote, citizens uh, of Hispanic origin, don't vote in Texas, particularly in midterm elections. Um, if you had the right candidate to tap into that, if you had the right political environment to tap into that, then then we might see that. Uh, Beto O'Rourke will not lack for money. He's already raised more than $20 million. And honestly, his, his third quarter haul, the third quarter is going to be over in a week or so uh, when he announces that next month. He could bring in $20 million in L- the third little quarter. little scoop here for Nerdcast. Uh- Listeners, actually, there's new filings out this morning that that we've analyzed that show he he raised nine million dollars online just in August. This is on that's unreal. Yeah, there were, I don't know if there was a senator last cycle who raised nine million dollars in a quarter, other than maybe Mitch McConnell. Let alone only online. Let alone a third of a quarter. So you're you're talking about massive amounts of cash. He'll have the money to make his argument. Um, that's kind of the end of my case building here. Uh, I'm obviously very skeptical, too. Uh, we have the race as, as lean Republican right now uh, uh, on our race ratings. Um, I think that's where it's probably going to stay. But but let's see. Uh, their first debate is coming up uh, today. And let's see where, where this race moves. So have we talked about Wendy Davis yet? Wendy Davis, who is the former state senator, the Democrat, who uh, shot to national fame with this big filibuster of an abortion bill in 2013, rode that wave into the governor's race in 2014 and got just absolutely crushed. Yes, that Wendy Davis. Okay, so my argument against Texas is this. In my job as politics editor, I feel like every two years, and I just wait for it, it's like the, the... what is it, the sparrows returning to San Juan Capistrano or the monarch butterflies uh, you know, returning to Mexico or the puffins going wherever puffins go. This comes up <laughs> where somebody comes in and pitches me a story like, okay, 
Texas going purple. Democrats are going to win this or that. And I'm just like, oh, man, we need to fire you immediately if that's your story. <laughs> because this, this never comes through. And I get the argument tex- about Texas diversity. And it, and it is going to be at some point soon a purple or trending Democratic state. But we're not there. We're probably at least a decade away from there. I agree with that. And it is moving while the country moved to the right overall, uh, Barack Obama won the popular vote in 2016, in 2012 rather, by four points. Hillary Clinton won it by two points. Texas moved the other way. Uh, uh, you know, Texas was was just as close as, as Iowa was uh, when it comes to Donald Trump's winning margin. That said, I think Iowa is going to snap back pretty dramatically this year. Uh, and and I'm, I'd be surprised to see Texas kind of snap the same way. And, and I should say, though, uh, about Beto, like I do think this is more real than others, uh, other uh, times when people have talked about Texas. I mean, clearly, he's running a pretty strong campaign. He's raising, or, you know, he's minting money online. It's, it's obvious that Republicans and the Cruz campaign are very worried and they take this very seriously. And you're right. I mean, even though Texas is is kind of the stronghold of the modern Republican Party, it's it's, you know, Red Citadel, but it is the heartland of the modern Republican Party. Trump, the truth is Trump did not do well. Just just the point you made, he did not crush it there in Texas. And in some parts of Texas, some Republican parts of Texas, you can see that he underperformed. That's that's what I wanted to say. I, I, I want to disagree with both of you a little bit and say that if if O'Rourke is to win in in November, or or even make it a really close race. I I think the the key vote isn't necessarily the the Hispanic vote that Steve talked about. I think it's it's kind of moderate suburban Republicans uh, of the sort that that are in some of these swing congressional districts that we're following. It doesn't seem to be the case that he's building though in his campaign necessarily. It's it's maybe not the case that that Beto's building, but Beto O'Rourke is building. But the these are folks who don't like Trump, and they weren't big fans of Cruz to begin with. And I, you know, unlike maybe some of some of their um, uh, members of Congress who have been around for a while, who they're more comfortable with, Cruz hasn't been around that long. He only burst on the scene in 2012. It's kind of hard to remember at this point. But we've seen there's uh, some folks, the, the New York Times and other organizations are polling these house races in suburban Houston, suburban Dallas, suburban San Antonio, and we're seeing uh, Cruz losing in places where Republicans are used to winning by double digits. So now, does that 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 obviously is only a small slice of Texas, right? You've got uh, vast rural counties. You've got uh, voters of every every stripe. But I I just I think that's a, a key segment of the vote to watch those those kind of white collar suburbs. Uh, that we've talked about so much with regard to the House are, are going to end up being pretty important in, in Texas. All right. We're talking about a red state here that's kind of come online as a possibility, a long shot possibility for Democrats. Let's talk about a very blue state that that has some Republicans excited. New Jersey. Charlie, why are Democrats sweating this out? New Jersey is a liberal state. They don't elect Republican senators. Yeah, this this one also has the sort of Charlie Brown and Lucy aspect to it, where uh, Lucy always pulls the football away from Charlie Brown. New- but in this instance, Charlie Brown was indicted. Right, but it's still New Jersey. Everything, Everything is legal in New Jersey. Jersey. I mean, it's New Jersey is its own unique uh, political ecosystem where there's a sort of. Uh, 
casual ethics permeate its political system. It's it's you know its political system is trapped in amber. You know with the ca- these county fiefdoms and it's just a really strange state. But either way, the most important part I think is that it's been nearly a half century since a Republican actually won a Senate race there. I and, think the most important part is that Senator Bob Menendez was indicted for 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 corruption charges, which he beat, but. He's getting beaten over the head for them still by by his Republican opponent. Yeah, but like in most of North Jersey and all the pop- population centers, nobody really cares. Uh, I think. I mean, that to me is New Jersey politics is is kingpins getting indicted or going to prison or or getting off on technicalities. So okay, okay, I'll I'll stop the cynicism about New Jersey f- for a second and get get back to that race. What I think is really interesting here is Menendez. Uh, obviously, his is deeply bruised as a result of this experience, and 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 you know it's never a good thing to be indicted as a, as a politician. And he's got a challenger who has money. Um, and this guy is spending a lot of money and he was hammering on Menendez all summer and it's left a, it's left a mark. And so here suddenly you've got this uh, solidly blue state with a viable Republican nominee who is, you know, can walk and chew gum and, you know, presents well, has a lot of money. And so it's a single digit race. On the flip side, in, in some ways, this Republican, Bob Hugan, seems like a poor fit for the, the times. Right, Steve? Yeah, former ph- pharmaceutical company uh, CEO, you know, d- not exactly an industry that, that voters have a fond impression of. Um, but it's, it's that money that, that Charlie talked about. $15 million of his own cash through the first half of this year. Uh, how much more is he willing to spend? He, he has gotten close in the polls. Um, but getting over the top there is going to be really, really difficult. And and so that said, he's put Democrats on the defensive. They've got to come in and help out Menendez a little bit. Uh, they're thinking about a race. You know, we started the segment talking about uh, uh, the, the these are the sleeper races. We thought we knew what the Senate landscape would look like. Ten Trump states with Democrats running for re-election, Dean Heller in Nevada, Arizona being open. But now we're talking about states like Texas and New Jersey um, this kind of changes the calculus for both parties. Uh, and this is a place where Democrats didn't expect to be on defense when the cycle began, even though Menendez has had these ethics woes for a while. Uh, and, and now they are, even though he did beat the charges, a mistrial, not an acquittal, but the government declined to retry him. So he is the charges are dismissed, I think, with prejudice. So they can't be they can't be reinstated. Um, but you know, it's it's definitely dogging him. The thing that's just struck me about this race is that uh, and and to be clear, Menendez has never trailed in a poll. Um, but he he's been pretty low, and Hugan has been pretty close to him. And his campaign keeps saying it's like, oh, well, we've been getting beaten over the head with all this money, and we barely started campaigning. But they've been saying that for months and months and months. And like you know, at some point, you need to kind of pull it together, right? Is is my thing. I still think he's probably favored uh, to win by by a good margin. But it's it's an unusual situation to be sure. I still think uh, that Menendez pulls this one out in the end. But one, one, one point that I think is important to note, speaking to Steve, Steve, I agree with Steve that it's not an ideal candidate profile being a millionaire, uh, former pharmaceutical executive. But I think it's worth remembering in New Jersey, that's not a terrible profile because of the size of the pharmaceutical industry in New Jersey. Like in many places, it would be uh, death. But in New Jersey, maybe not. Steve, let's let's uh, do the next one. Take us down south to Tennessee. And uh, you you wrote that if the Senate does flip to Democrats this year, Phil Bredesen 
the candidate there will be a big reason why. Yeah, former two-term governor, popular former two-term governor, uh, a moderate Democrat, someone who's who's campaigning on a, a very centrist profile. Uh, again, a state that we didn't think we'd be talking about. Bob Corker, the incumbent, declining to run for re-election. Uh, but one that, that Bredesen, who was probably Democrats' most important recruit, other than keeping their uh, uh, sitting senators from retiring, uh, really the most important thing I think that happened for Democrats' chances in 2017 was getting Bredesen into this race. Uh, he's a legitimate candidate here. There was a CNN SSRS poll this week that showed him leading Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn, the Republican nominee. It's a state that changes the calculus because, you know, uh, we've talked about Democrats having two offensive opportunities in Arizona and Nevada. Well, this is a third and they need to net two seats. So if they can win Arizona, Nevada and Tennessee, gives then them this gives room. them a wiggle room. They can lose one and still grab control of the chamber. Without that, uh, it's really, really a tight. I mean, it's still unlikely, but it's it's really a tightrope walk without Tennessee on the map. And Charlie, Bre- Bredesen is, is literally a candidate from another time period back when Democrats competed in, in Tennessee. He was last elected in 2006. A lot has changed since uh, since then, but he's still retained some personal popularity. Yeah, I mean, it is an entirely different state in political terms than it was when uh, Bredesen was the governor. Uh, And I think just the mere – this is just a a show of strength from a uh, tremendously gifted politician, the fact that he's even in the hunt. It is a testament to his skill, but it's also a testament to how polarizing Marsha Blackburn is because as conservative as Tennessee is – uh, people often forget the eastern part of the state is a very different kind of Republican. Um, and that is a much more moderate Republican. And, and it is one of the few bastions of sort of Republican mo- uh, moderation in that party. Like mo- most most states don't operate the way Tennessee does with uh, with that kind of strength in the centrist Republican wing, uh, in the mountain wing of the Republicans. That's like the Corker wing, uh, which is kind of like moderate conservative. Um, and so I think because of the unique conditions in Tennessee, uh, Bredesen has a a real shot of winning there. All right. Next up, Minnesota. And this is interesting because we've got a twofer there. Uh, We've got uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar, the Democrat, up for re-election. And then we've got Senator Tina Smith, the appointed senator to replace Al Franken, who is running in a special to complete the rest of Franken's term. Steve? Yeah. No, this Klobuchar is safe. Uh, Polls show her way ahead. But there was a a Mason-Dixon poll out this week. Uh, in the special election that has Tina Smith only seven points up on Republican Karen Housley. Uh, this is a, a race to watch, one that, Repub- that, that both parties are going to pay attention to as we move forward. Tina Smith was the lieutenant governor, someone without her own political profile outside of Governor Mark Dayton, who's, who's retiring this year. Uh, someone who, who needs to define herself. She was only 43 percent in the poll. She really needs she really has work to do uh, to to get to a commanding position. Minnesota is a state that moved toward, we talked about Texas moving toward Democrats. Minnesota moved toward Republicans. Hillary Clinton only won it by a point and a half. People forget that, yeah. It's a state that that is going to be a key uh, part, I think, of Donald Trump's reelection campaign in 2020, is competing for Minnesota's uh, 10 electoral votes. And this is gonna be uh, a good test kind of, you know, you have two relatively, uh, undefined candidates going in. Uh, this is a good test of where the the statewide environment is in Minnesota. Better a better test than than say the the Klobuchar race, and she has such a, a huge profile and she's very popular there. Or the governor's race, where Republicans nominated a weak candidate. All right, Charlie, I want you to take us out with the uh, most chaotic scenario possible for Senate control of, of these uh, sleeper races. Let's say Democrats managed to pick up a seat on election night, despite these very long odds. Uh, 
They get to 50 seats, one from a majority. And then all of a sudden, Mississippi becomes the center of the political world. Tell us why. Well, Mississippi stands to be the wild card in part because of the nature of their uh, special election there. Uh, Because the the, the Mississippi seat uh, is is sort of unique in a way in that there were no Senate primaries for this seat. Uh, All the candidates are going to run together on election day uh, without any party labels. And if no one wins a majority, uh, the top two finishers go to a runoff at the end of the month. And so the real chaos there is, and it would be wild if they were deadlocked uh, on election day. And we would have three weeks where all eyes would be on Mississippi. The campaign would be crazy. Millions of dollars would be poured into those small media markets. Every national reporter would be camped out there just to see who wins that race. And the race is really fascinating because it's got a lot of uh, you know unique characters in it right now. Chris McDaniel, who is sort of the last of those uh, Tea Party outlier type candidates. Uh, he, you know, he had his oxygen star from him because he didn't win Trump's endorsement. But who knows what happens? I mean, in these special elections, I think the hallmark of, of special elections over the last 25 years is craziness. You never know what's going to come out of them. And so you've got uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith, who people really don't know that well. You know, she was appointed to the seat. Uh, a wild card is Mike Espy on the Democratic side. Uh, because you can, I, I can imagine a scenario where, uh, you know, there's a tremendous African-American uh, turnout for Espy. SB. People often forget, but like SB was once a big rising star in Mississippi. He was, uh, you know, a, a, a really talented member of Congress. He's a, uh, you know, former cabinet secretary. And then he kind of vanished from the, the national radar, at least. Well, he had his own ethics woes that he beat at trial. Yeah. And but I mean, back it's the kind of thing like that. To me, that was always more of a Washington story than anything. You know, he was somebody who was still. Y- y- yes. Anytime you go through that process process, you're tarnished by it in one way or another, but he's also a formidable candidate. And so who knows what could happen in, in that kind of hothouse environment. All right, guys, that was great. So giving us a lot, a lot to uh, keep track of as we move forward toward November. Steve, thank you so much for, for being here to talk us through it. Always a pleasure, Scott. And uh, Charlie, thank you as well. Thanks, Scott. Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye. Yes, that'll be the day when you make me cry. As promised, we are going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan here to take us out of the show. Tom Casey of Texas's 12th District. Charlie, representative, this is a tough one. Kay Granger? That is correct. Boom! Is going to help us out with the credits this week. Wow. Tom, take us away. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez with help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you very much, Tom, from the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, home to Kay Granger. Listeners, we found Tom because he emailed in to say he was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, please let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com and make sure to tell us your congressional district so we can keep testing Charlie. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you again next week. To those who were digging my political grave so that they could jump into my seat, I know who you are, and I won't forget you. Oh, my God, straight out of Hudson County. (laughs) To those of you who are eyeing my job, I will hunt you down. I will kill you 
your wife, your children, and your children's children. <laughs> Jesus, Charlie. Metaphorically speaking. Yes. <laughs>